0: Welcome to Broad Gauge Gossips, the podcast where you can learn about the faculty of the Department of Military History in the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. Hello, I'm Dr. Jonathan Abel, and we're here today with Professor Dr. Jeff Babb. Welcome. Welcome. So Good to be here. We're we're here to talk a little bit about your background. So let, let's start with your academic background. Tell us a little bit about your your schooling and your specialties.
1: Okay, I I started out undergraduate at Bowdoin College in Brunswick, Maine. Uh, after graduating from Bowdoin, I entered the United States Army as a as a military intelligence officer. My first duty assignment was uh, 10th Special Forces Group, Fort Devens, Massachusetts. And while I was there, I got a master's in public administration at uh, Clark University in Worcester, Mass. Um, As a military intelligence officer, I did the normal military intelligence officer basic, officer advanced course. And then I ended up at uh, the Defense Intelligence Agency as the junior China Ground Forces analyst. And so that's what got me interested in China. The Army trained me as a China foreign area officer, so I went to uh, a year of Chinese language at Monterey, California, and the Defense Language Institute. And then I had the great opportunity to go to Hong Kong uh, and take another year of language at the British Ministry of Defense Chinese Language School. And then I spent a summer at Beijing University doing a six-week language course up there at, at Beijing University, so I had a chance to live at, on campus and live in, in Beijing. Um, after that, I came back and uh, was stationed at the what is now U.S. Indo-PACOM uh, as the Senior China Analyst, and I did that for a couple of years, and then I went over to what's now U.S. Army Pacific, uh, and I no longer worked Intel. I worked... Um, basically operations and training, helping to plan exercises in the Pacific where I had travel to Hong Kong once a quarter, Japan, Korea a couple of times, and then uh, once a quarter down to Australia because that was uh, our main account. So that was my military background. Uh, After that, I uh, got a chance to teach ROTC in South Carolina, which was kind of a a break from over 10 years' working China stuff. And then I came to the Command and General Staff College as an instructor in the Department of Joint and Multinational Interagency Operations DGIMO now. Um, in 1991. Uh, retired from the Army with a little over 20 years in 1994 and I've been teaching as a civilian here ever since.
0: Okay, and uh, you did your doctorate at KU? I did my doctorate at KU. When I retired
1: in 1994. I went down to the University of Kansas and I thought I was going to get into a political science program because with my master's in public administration, uh, but nothing seemed to fit. So I said, uh-oh, got to start over. So I got a master's in East Asian Languages and Cultures uh, at the University of Kansas and I took a whole bunch of history courses. And at the end of that, I applied for the Ph.D. program in history, was accepted and then started working on the PhD in history. And my fields changed over time, but essentially they were modern Chinese, ancient Chinese, modern Japanese, and international relations. And then I added uh, military and diplomatic history after that. So um, I got all kinds of courses at KU.
0: <laughs> it sounds like it. Um, so before we dive into some of these details, in addition to the um, the core and AOC classes, what else do you teach, and what other service do you do here at CGSC?
1: Or disservice might be a better way to put it. (laughs) Um, Ever since I got here in 1991, I I have put together China electives, uh, Indo, what's now U.S. Indo-PACOM electives. So I used to have uh, China Military Art Wars and Revolutions and the People's Liberation Army, which was the course I did up in Dijimo, or JIMO. And then when I came down here to the history department, uh, I built a Chinese Way of War elective um, that basically starts uh, with the the Shang dynasty and the Zhou dynasty and goes all the way up to current uh, current events. So it's a it is a not a very in depth course, but it covers. Mm -hmm. Uh, since I built that it's been one of the most popular electives here and now I end up teaching four mods of it um, during the elective elective periods and I'm also teaching a mod of it to the new um, the new courses that we've added on I don't even know what TTBM stands for but it's the we have students that come in for the core course and then they go back to their duty stations and then we bring in people for the advanced operations course so the leadership there wanted to try some electives for them, so I, I'm one of the two electives that gets taught to these folks coming in, and it they're shortened. They're only the they're basically half courses, but it's it's fun and and it's again very well received. Um, we have mm, 29 students that are taking it this, which they don't really get much credit for it or any credit for it. It's it's something they want to do, but the interest in China is crazy.
0: Oh, I imagine so. And, and what about all of the other kind of one-off um, talks and engagements and curriculum development that you do?
1: Well, I think the history department has a, a great set of programs and now after COVID, we added back the Leavenworth Library piece, which I think is also super. Um, so I guess I've done one in every venue. Um, the Dole Center, uh, I've done three or four there. Uh, the Dole Center at the University of Kansas, uh, it, that venue is, is at a strange time and place, Thursdays at 3 o'clock, like once a month, but the YouTube following is is pretty big on that one. Uh, I think I've done three at the World War One Museum, which is pretty odd. Most people don't realize that China actually joined World War One as one of our allies in August of 1917, so nobody nobody much knows what the chinese did but they they actually sent workers uh to france and i i did i covered one of those um i've done i think four now at the kansas city public library i just did in in the recent past um 55 days at peking it was a lot of fun the 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 hollywood uh versus history those are just they're a lot of fun to do Mm-hmm. and of course they're now on on YouTube as well um, looking forward to the new series that we'll we keep having a series at Dole always ongoing and I think that's that that's super it's harder to find stuff to do at the World War One Museum now because it was great during the centennial years but I think they still want us down there and we'll find things to do there uh, let's see, am I missing one? I, I've done um, uh, the Kansas Historical Society. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I have a, I, I've done a couple of Korean War ones. So uh, the history department's great. And I think we're well enough known so people will ask us to do things. Um, within the schoolhouse here, uh, we have a, uh, the Culture Office, uh, Dr. Abrimohoff. and I think I've probably done three of those. Um, and there's another venue within house the the CTSC Foundation. They've done national security panels, and I've done several of those. So, like I say, the the China piece is just the gift that keeps on giving. And we're finally up to right now there are five China. Um, Subject matter experts on post, so I I can now share the load a little bit more, and that's that's great for with me.
0: Right, right, right. So let's dive into that that question a little bit. First of all, for people who are unaware, what what does a foreign area officer, a FAO, do within the army? Uh,
1: that's a great great question. First of all, it's a it's a long training program. the The training program st- starts with you must have a master's degree. in in a related topic they prefer area studies. Um, The language uh, is is the biggest piece and then the in-country experience. So it's graduate school, in-country experience, language. For some people that can be as little as two years, for some it's as long as four. What does the Army do with its foreign area officers? In a strange Work, I guess the Army uses them less than the mili- than the than the Joint World does. We're going to be uh, like senior analysts in our countries uh, in the combatant command. So for me, U.S. Indo-Pacom. We're probably going to serve on the Army staff, on the Joint staff, on the DOD staff. So Washington D.C. is the big home of FAO's. Uh, there are. In terms of retired and active duty FAOs, there's probably 20 at CGSC um, because we work at the combatant command level and we work in the, in the Pentagon. Uh, we have a skill set that fits into the curriculum here for the strategic and operational piece. Right. Um, and so the Army trains and provides FAOs, to the De- Department of Defense, to the joint world, and to a lesser extent, for its own needs. Uh, but it's, uh, for China FAOs, they've essentially trained for a year since Stillwell went there in 1919. Um, and I'm, I was in the years, uh, in the mid 80s. Um, it's a, because it's four a year, for all those years, we tend to keep track of each other. Uh, we have an officer that, uh, a retired officer who uh, does a roster that has telephone numbers and, and so we can reach out to each other globally and there's people work still work with Department of Defense and then there are people in business and then there are people that are in other other places in the government so it's a great resource for us that we can reach out to grab
0: and that, that brings us to the obvious question how does, a, how does a young officer from Maine end up as a China fail?
1: Uh, I studied Russian in in college um, I went to the defense, I went to the 10th Special Forces group which is the European uh, Special Forces group my deployment was to Norway and England and Denmark and so I wanted to be a Norwegian fail and so where does the army send me they sent me to the China ground forces slot in the Defense Intelligence Agency and once I started work in China I Dating myself is easy. Um, When I left as a captain, I left the Military Intelligence Advanced Course at Fort Huachuca, Arizona. As I'm driving to my new job in the China shop, China Current Intelligence Shop, in the Defense Intelligence Agency, the Chinese attacked into Vietnam in 1979. So I showed up uh, to get settled into Washington D.C. and was told that I was um, on in would be at the East Asia desk at the National uh, in, in the National uh, yeah, national Military Command Center, the National Joint Intelligence Center now, I think it even has another name now, but I, I immediately started work in China. I couldn't find it on a map, um, okay. but I soon learned.
0: <laughs> so how, uh, how has the relationship between the U.S. and China changed? You mentioned uh, that you'd studied in the, the, the it's British Colonial University and in China itself. So how's that changed from the FAO perspective?
1: When I when I came into the Defense Intelligence Agency in 1979, President Carter had just signed the Shanghai Communique, and we were now friends. We began through the 80s to sell them military equipment. They are near allies in a potential fight against the Soviet Union. So when I first started... Uh, my mentors were all people who saw China as the enemy because they were mostly Vietnam vets and they had uh, basically grown up with China as a nation that had supplied the Vietnamese with critical military equipment. So they were the enemy. So my mentors, those majors and lieutenant colonels and colonels that I will, be, will work for and know, they are all China haters. mm mm-hmm. And they, the Chinese had earned that. Uh, and then I show up in the, in the, kind of the group of the late 70s, early 80s, and China's now our ally. Um, that whole process that began in 71 and 72 with the Kissinger ping pong diplomacy and the, and the Nixon visit in 72 had, had basically ended with China as a near ally. Then 1989. And I left U.S. PACOM area in 1989, just as just after Tenement. just as Tenement was going on. I was leaving to go to a new assignment.
0: And this is Deng Xiaoping kind of repressing more democratic uh, student movements, popular movements. It,
1: and it was a it was a fight within the Communist Party of China. Uh, they the Communist Party of China uh, the the expected next leader after Deng Xiaoping was a guy named Zhao Ziyang. And Zhao went down to the, to Tiananmen Square, talked to the students, cried with the students, and it didn't work. And Zhao Ziyang spent the rest of his life under house arrest. Mm-hmm. And the butcher of Beijing, a guy named Li Peng, another important person in the party, um, convinced Deng, and it probably didn't take very much convincing, that the Communist Party of China had to crack down on the students partially because that student revolt was expanding into the workers, actually into the military. And so with Tiananmen Square, we start to look at China differently again. Now, arguably, the first President Bush, who had been sort of the first unofficial ambassador to China, had been head of the CIA, he understood how important China was and tried to minimize the, the influence of, of Tiananmen, but it was just too much. It was, you know, on the cover of Time Magazine, the PLA tank, and mm-hmm. and the young man standing in front of it just as an indelible symbol of repression in China. And so what we've seen since Tiananmen has been a slow deterioration of their ability. Now, from the military side of the house, the the terrible showing of the People's Liberation Army at uh, in Vietnam in 1979 led Deng Xiaoping to call for something called the streamlining of the PLA. And then the Chinese equipment in the hands of the Iraqis in 1990-91 uh, not showing up very well. The huge Iraqi army essentially evaporated in 100 hours in front of the U.S. Army and the Chinese took, took notice. Mm-hmm. So one can argue that in 1991, the, the PLA had to, had to begin what had, what had started uh, with their showing in Vietnam in 1979 to, to build. And then this sadness, the more we help the Chinese economy, the greater amount of funds the Chinese have to put towards defense. So they have a steady climbing uh, GDP, a steady climbing defense budget. And with that, they also, with their wonderful ability to always do chapter 13 of Sun Tzu, or Sunza, which is spies. They have stolen, borrowed, adapted, uh, and arguably now will begin to uh, go past Uh, in terms of technology. This idea that the Chinese can't be inventive just flies in the face of the reality of paper, compasses, uh, seismographs, probably gunpowder. Gunpowder might even work. Um, It's, you know, the Chinese can never invent anything. They're going to just be copiers. Well, I don't think that's, we're going to start to see them go beyond, far beyond copying, and I think we already have. So, I'm of that generation that, that grew up as China as at least friend, if not ally, and have watched that crash uh, to where we are today, where our national security documents are calling China our pacing threat.
0: So final question. As a proud graduate of Bowdoin College, uh, tell us a little bit about Joshua Chamberlain.
1: Ah, uh-huh, Joshua Chamberlain. Um i grew up on joshua chamberlain uh, i was born and brought up in the area around calis maine st stephen new brunswick and every time we wanted to go to town to the big city we had to go to bangor so to go to bangor maine you drove up route nine you went across the joshua chamberlain bridge between brewer and bangor maine and uh so very early in my life there was joshua chamberlain but strangely enough joshua chamberlain does not Become a major figure for the army until the doctrine. I'm and I'm, I may bollocks this up in terms of dates, but our, We began to look after the Vietnam War at problems with leadership and especially with ethics So the army wanted an ethical leader as a role model. So they picked Joshua Chamberlain uh, a professor of rhetoric uh, an oratory at Bowdoin a I believe he graduated from Bangor Theological Seminary so he was also a minister. But he wasn't that big or well known uh, until the movie Gettysburg. And with the movie Gettysburg um, it's no longer dumber and dumber. Uh, It's a it's a different look at, at Joshua Chamberlain and of course the other thing that most historians you know have long come to realize sometimes it's fiction that's better than than nonfiction in studying you know leadership so um, Killer Angels by uh, Shara uh, took over first place and that becomes the movie it's based on the first book I ever read on uh, Joshua Chamberlain which was John J. Poulin's The 20th Maine which is still kinda the standard although there have been several books um, Trulock's book in the hands of Providence, probably being the best uh, of the modern books on it. But it all it all started. Mm-hmm. Bowden did not have a um, a statue uh, when you wanted to do something at Bowden, uh, Joshua Chamberlain. You went and found where he was buried. But since then, they have put up a statue at the at, at the corner of, of Route One and I think Pleasant Street. The First Parish Church, where his father-in-law uh, served, is on that corner. And across the street is his house. And when I was at Bowdoin, his house was Mary's Student Quarters. Uh, since then, the Pajepsket Historical Society bought the building and have restored it as best they can to the time period of when he lived there, and it is now a museum. So I've I've, I've watched Joshua Chamberlain go from this kind of not very well-known figure to to prominence.
0: Very good. Dr. Babb, thank you. My pleasure. Please be sure to check out our other podcast, A Confused Heap of Facts, where we sit down with military historians from the Department of Military History and special guests to talk about topics in military history.